0: Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm going to begin reading at um, verse 11, and we're, we're, this is uh, fighting against Satan, part 6, and we've come to uh, verse, I believe it's 15, yeah, verse 15, and I've called this gospel shoes and readiness, gospel shoes, and of course it would be sandals, but gospel shoes and readiness. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. (coughs) Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. (coughs) And having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and here's our text, verse 15, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. The third piece of our armor, necessary, To successfully wage warfare against Satan and his demonic host is the gospel of peace. Verse 15, once again Stand therefore, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, although we don't often think of shoes as part of armor, although in the Middle Ages they had metal things over their feet because they were generally sitting on horses. And the Greeks did have some metal plating on their ankles and their warshoes. Um, they were crucial, crucial for successful warfare. Roman soldiers wore thick leather sandals with straps around the ankle and soles thickly studded with metal nails. Well, why is that? Well, you need great footing. You need good quality shoes for marching and you need good solid footing for fighting because they're not fighting on pavement. They're not fighting in cities with paved streets. They're fighting on dirt and mud. They were famous for their ability to march long distances and their superior footing in combat no matter what the conditions and there are three parts of the statement that need careful biblical definition before we uh, make various applications. And what I've ended up doing is making applications and just mixing them in. First, we need to examine the phrase with the preparation. And, and then second, what does Paul mean by the gospel? And then third, what does peace mean in relation to the gospel? And I'll actually answer the third one during the second one. <clears throat> the word proclamation, excuse me, the word preparation, which is only found here in the, in the Greek New Testament, it's the only place this word is found, comes from the verb hetoimazo, which means to make ready or to prepare. If we take this interpretation or translation, then the apostle is saying that we must shod our feet with the gospel that gets peace in order to be ready for all spiritual conflicts. Quite simple. In favor of this view is the fact that the Greek, the same Greek word is used in this manner in the Greek Septuagint. For example, Psalm 9, 41 and 10, 17. A Christian's readiness of mind comes from the gospel, which establishes or brings peace biblically defined. <coughs> you can't be ready to defend yourself if you don't have the gospel right pretty obvious. As having one's sandals strapped on tight makes one ready for the battle, believing in the gospel and what it achieves is necessary for the fight against evil forces. That's Paul's point. Now, another possible interpretation, and these interpretations uh, are very common. They're both held, and they both have the same application, so it's not a big difference, but Another possible interpretation, which leads to a similar application, is that the gospel of piece is the firm foundation, which is necessary to have before the fight. <clears throat> and this view is based how the wor- this Greek word is used in Hellenistic Greek, the more ancient Greek, or we'd say classical Greek. In the older Greek, we find it used for preparation and we find it used for foundation. If one holds this view, which is certainly theologically correct, and suits this passage, the difference is minor in that the gospel is foundational of the Christian faith and is necessary as a preparation to enter spiritual warfare. If you don't have the gospel right, you're worthless. What can you do? You know, there's all these conservatives and they have great conservative political views, but they don't have the gospel right and if you don't have the gospel right and you burn in hell and you go to hell what use is all of it in addition and i think this is significant and this is what's influenced people like john gill the jewish translators who gave us the greek septuagint about 200 bc <clears throat> occasionally used the greek word hetoimia to translate the hebrew word for foundation or place for example psalm 136:15 Ezekiel 2.68, Daniel 11.7, and Zechariah (coughs) 5.11. So we find Jews using the same Greek word for foundation. And that's based on, you have to understand, we say classical Greek or Hellenistic Greek, and then we say Koine Greek or New Testament Greek. Languages evolve over time. So, words that may be archaic in one period, it's a gradual process to shift from this use of the word to this use of the word. So in 200 BC, the Jewish translators are using this Greek word from Hellenistic Greek. Now those who object to this interpretation believe that a shoe is an odd thing to compare to a foundation. But if the war sandal represents the gospel, one could have no objection to it serving as a foundation what is first? You preach. Somebody preaches the gospel and people are believe it or they don't believe it. That's the starting point of, of redemption. That's the starting point of your walk in service of Christ is the gospel. <coughs> Second, and this will be the main topic today, we need to turn, we need to examine the word gospel and determine its meaning in scripture and why it is necessary as a foundation or preparation for warfare against evil forces, the word gospel, on, which really originally referred to good news or an announcement of glad tidings, and so in some cases a reward for good tidings, uh, you have to understand in the old days, uh, before printing presses. How did news spread? Well, they didn't have the Internet. A guy would show up, and he'd stand in the town square, Hear ye, hear ye. Today the king married so-and-so, or today this happened. We won this battle of Hastings. That's how news was, and it was good news. Obviously, bad news was not called good news, but it was, it was by a herald. In the New Testament, it refers to the gospel or good news of Christ's salvation. Well, what does this mean? Well, it refers to the facts or historical events of our Lord's achieved redemption on earth, his birth through the Virgin Mary incarnation, born in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary around 4 BC, his sinless perfect life. He actually walked the earth for 33 and a half years, which is his state of humiliation, His vicarious suffering and death, he died on the cross, he was unjustly condemned, he was tortured, died a suffering, bloody death on the cross, and then his glorious resurrection from the dead on the third day, which is his exaltation. So unlike Hinduism, which is nothing but mythology, and Greek and Roman paganism, which is nothing but mythology as well, and most religions with their complete nonsense and mythology, or unlike certain religions, which are simply a a philosophy that somebody made up, like Buddhism or Zoroastrianism. It's just a philosophy some guy made up. If you want to follow it, fine. If you don't want to follow it, fine. These are events that really happened in history. The, the Christianity is founded upon fact, historical fact. And then you have the theological interpretation of these historical events, In the Old Testament shadows, prophecies, and types, as well as the New Testament exposition of those facts. There's no such thing as an uninterpreted fact. How are these facts interpreted? Through the apostles, by the Holy Spirit, and the evangelist, of course. The Gospels, the epistles, the book of Revelation. How are they interpreted in the New Testament? It's not just some, like in Hinduism, there are stories about this guru died and he rose from the dead, or this guru died and he never rotted. Uh, those are wonderful myths, but we have facts and we have theological interpretation of those facts, and you have to interpret those facts in terms of the New Testament, which is inspired. And then, of course, the reality of the kingdom of God established on earth with power due to that perfect salvation. So you get got the facts, get the theological interpretation of the facts, and you have the kingdom of God established on earth with power by Christ's resurrection from the dead. If we are to be effective and ready to fight against evil forces, it is absolutely essential that our foundation be true, solid, genuine, or real. Don't you feel sorry for those uh, Marxists? and they, they become revolutionaries and they die and they starve and they suffer and they die and go straight to hell because they're fighting for something that's totally a lie or how about those Hindus I mean I, I mean, how about those Muslims who blow themselves up or fly an b- airplane into a building and go straight to hell they're totally sincere but it's not true and they go right to hell but we have the truth the gospel is real the gospel is the starting point of our warfare against evil And therefore, it is absolutely necessary that we define the gospel biblically, (coughs) faithfully, biblically, truly. No heresy, no human admixture, no syncretism. With regard to the gospel, we need to examine what Christ accomplished in his redemptive mission and how a person appropriates that perfect salvation. So we're looking at it objectively. What did Christ do? What did he accomplish? And then subjectively, how does it become ours? How do we receive that gift? When we look at what Jesus accomplished for our salvation, it is best divided into two aspects related to quite what God's moral law requires of all human beings. First, and this is the best way to look at it, because he came to obey the law and to die to get rid of the penalty of the law. First, the penalty for sin must be paid for in full. Exodus 34.7, Numbers 14.18, Nehemiah 1, 1.3. And the penalty for disobedience to the law is death in the comprehensive sense. Uh, Genesis 2.17, three three, Romans 6.23, the curse of the law Galatians 3.10, Deuteronomy 27.26, separation from God, Genesis 3.23, Revelation 6.15, and God's displeasure and wrath, Romans 1.18 and 2.8. All of these aspects of the penalty are organically related or interconnected. And we could say death in the full sense of the term, spiritual death, hell, curse, suffering, all those things are part of that penalty of the law. The point that the scriptures make about the penalty for sin is that the penalty must be paid for in full. That is the guilt and the liability of punishment that arises from that guilt before a person can go to heaven and behold the face of God. And we, looked, we discussed holiness earlier. Why is it that God requires this? Why can't God just say, oh, come on, man. You're in. I'll overlook your sins. You're in. You can go to heaven. Because God can't do that. God cannot deny himself. God is absolutely holy, righteous, and just. He can't deny his own nature. He had to save man in a way that honored his righteousness, that honored his perfect holiness. That's why it could only be through Christ. That's a critical thing. That's what separates Biblical Christianity from all the cults and Islam and, and uh, Hinduism and all those things. They don't, they don't have that. They don't have justice. The God of the Bible is so holy and righteous that he cannot overlook sin. And this teaching, which is explicitly taught in the Bible, separates Biblical Christianity from all other monotheistic religions and cults. Judaism has abandoned blood atonement. Their temple was destroyed, so they, the Pharisees developed a, uh, basically salvation by turning over a new leaf. Tell God you're sorry, say you repent, apologize for your sins, and God will look, overlook your sins. But they're not paid for. He just simply overlooks them. So God doesn't, such a God is not really a just God. The same with Islam. You turn over a new leaf. You say you're sorry. You start living in accordance with their laws. You try to obey their laws. And God will overlook your sins, your faults. And if you read in the Talmud, the Talmud talks about the day of judgment. And there's the, the scales of justice, the woman with the two scales. If your righteous deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you get to go to heaven. If they don't outweigh your bad deeds, you don't get to go to heaven. That's salvation by works. But the sins are never paid for, they're just overlooked. If you murder somebody and you go work in a soup kitchen for five years, that doesn't eliminate the murder. It's good to work in a soup kitchen, but that doesn't eliminate the guilt of the murder. <clears throat> it's the reason that Scripture says if the only way to the Father or to heaven is through Jesus Christ. John fourteen six, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. Acts four twelve. There was no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And then, of course, Romans 10.13. One way. One way. Only through Christ. And if you hear anybody who professes to be a Christian says that, well, Hindus and Buddhists and people, are, if they're sincere, they'll go to heaven, that's existentialism. That is not the Bible. That's humanism existentialism is basically the philosophy it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere and you do it with true sincerity that's existentialism, that is not Christianity our Lord paid the penalty of the law in full by his suffering and death on the cross and the theological term is vicarious atonement he died in your place he died in your stead and I have a book on the atonement on reformedonline.com, you can read it, and it's very easy to prove this from Scripture. The idea that the Bible doesn't teach vicarious atonement is by liberals and modernists is absolute nonsense. The grammar, uh, when we interpret Scripture, we have to go by the Greek and Hebrew grammar, and the Greek and Hebrew grammar is crystal clear. He died in the place of his people. He died in their stead, vicarious atonement. His suffering and death removed the guilt of sin. And the theological word for that is expiation. The penalty is paid for and therefore removed. His suffering and death removed the guilt of sin, and he propitiated, that is, removed God's wrath. Once the guilt is paid for, once the penalty has been paid for in full, God has no more reason, judicially, to be angry with you because the price has been paid. and thus reconciled God to the believing sinner. The Bible talks about reconciliation. Well, reconciliation doesn't mean you need to be reconciled with God, that you're angry at God. It's the other way around. You've offended God, and God needs to be reconciled to you. And Jesus redeemed believers by paying the price for their sin and guilt, and thus totally removed the curse of the law. The sinful record has been paid for in full, because the elect sinful record or guilt was imputed to Christ on the cross. And let me just read a few passages quickly. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15.3 Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Romans 5.18 Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, that's the sin of Adam, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. And he's talking covenantally there. All in Adam, all in Christ. Doesn't teach he died for all men without exception, those who are in him. Colossians 2.14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Isaiah 53.10, you made his soul an offering for sin. Did Jesus deserve to die? Absolutely not. He never sinned once. He was righteous, holy, and just, but he died for us. Hebrews, uh, Romans 3, 24 to 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely, that is, declared righteous by God in the heavenly court freely, by his grace, it's undeserved, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. How does the gospel demonstrate God's righteousness? God gets people into heaven, He gives them eternal life, and he honors his law at the same time by paying the penalty in full and imputing the righteousness of Christ to them. And then Hebrews 2.17. In all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, he removed the wrath of God against their sin. How? By paying the price in full. Second Corinthians 6:18 and 19. God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Romans 5:10. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Galatians 3:13. Being just, oh, excuse me, Romans 3:24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Redemption emphasizes that there's, he paid the price. In the Old Testament, if you had an ox and it got out of your gate and it gored somebody to death, it wasn't you didn't do it on purpose. It was purely an accident. Well, you had a choice. You could die or you could pay a ransom price. Well, our choice is we can die and go to hell or we can believe in Christ because he paid the ransom price by his blood, by his suffering, by his death on the cross. He paid the penalty in full. If you trust in him, if you believe in him, if you cling to him, you don't have to go to hell. He paid the penalty. <clears throat> Galatians three thirteen being just uh, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. First Peter one eighteen. You are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot or blemish. And then one more, Hebrews 9.28. I had to just keep these two a few. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Excuse me, Isaiah 53, 6 and 11. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Now, before the coming of Christ, that passage was interpreted by many Jewish scholars, this is before Christ was born, as referring to the Messiah. The Messiah somehow is going to bear the iniquities of his people. After the coming of Christ and the rise of Pharisaical Judaism, which replaced the religion of the Old Testament, they're not the same thing. They're completely different. Modern Judaism is a cult. It has, nothing, it has almost nothing to do with biblical religion, which requires atonement. They don't, they don't have atonement. They believe in salvation through good works. They believe in salvation by turning over a new leaf. They do not believe in atonement. They believe in salvation by law. <clears throat> and then Hebrews nine twenty-eight, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. So the sacrifice, the re-sacrificing of Christ in the Mass, which is done in Roman Catholic churches, is blasphemous, it's idolatry, it's paganism. And it's not taught in Scripture at all. So our sins have been covered. Psalm eighty five two, Romans four seven, washed away. Isaiah four four, Ezekiel sixteen nine, Revelation one five, and Revelation seven fourteen. They've been blotted out. Isaiah forty three twenty five. They've been made white as snow. Isaiah one hundred eighteen. And they've been cast into the bottom of the sea by the shed blood of Christ. Consequently, Yahweh will remember our sins, our sinful record no more. Isaiah. or hold it against us judicially ever again. We have been forgiven by God in a manner that honors God's righteous and just holy holy nature. He's righteous, he's just, he's holy. So as Paul says, Romans 3.26, Yahweh remains fully just as he justifies believing sinners. How could a God who's ethically perfect and just and righteous and perfect in every way has not one iota of unholiness in him or unrighteousness in him? How can he get people into heaven who are sinners, who have a sinful record? He does it through Christ. The price is paid for in full. So he's just and he's the justifier through Christ. The sacrificial death of Jesus is the only way to save fallen man and restore him to a loving relationship with God. And just a brief side note, there was a debate among scholars and Puritans and so forth about was the death of Christ absolutely necessary to get people into heaven? Calvin and uh, Samuel Rutherford said, no, God could have saved men another way if he wanted to. It's just that's the way God chose. And then on the other side, you have people like John Owen who said, no, it's absolutely necessary and guess who's correct? John Owen is correct Samuel Rutherford and Calvin on this issue were wrong. now I could probably find quotes from Calvin that support John that support John Owen. Calvin wrote a lot of stuff because <clears> of <throat> because of christ because of what Christ has achieved we have been adopted into god's own family ephesians one five and can say with paul 1 corinthians three twenty one and twenty three all things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ's is God's. Due to the work of the Savior, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise and have the full guarantee of our inheritance, which our Lord purchased, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. We have been blessed with every spiritual heavenly blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ, Ephesians 1, 3, who sits at the right hand of God. We have been made alive spiritually in Christ, the new birth, Regeneration. Ephesians 2, 1 and 5. And we walk in newness of life. Sanctification, Romans 6, 4 to 14. So positionally, we sit together with Christ in heaven, Ephesians 2, 6. And as a nation of priest kings are progressively taking dominion over planet earth. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Revelation 2, 26. Revelation 19, 15. So such an amazing, comprehensive salvation is truly good news for you, if you believe. If you don't believe, it's not good news, because he's coming back, and he's going to sit on that white, lustrous throne and judge all humanity. And there's going to be some on the right hand and some on the left hand, and those on the left hand are cast into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So if you don't believe, it's not, this isn't good news for you. Because Christ is king. Christ is coming as a judge. He came in a state of humiliation. He comes in a state of exaltation. <clears throat> the moral law of God not only requires that the guilt and liability of punishment be paid for in full by a suitable substitute, the divine human sinless mediator. <clears throat> and I'm being very very brief. He had to be divine to offer a sacrifice of infinite value for the elect. He had to be a sinless human because obviously a lamb or a bullock couldn't do it. They're not the same as a human. But also that the whole moral law be perfectly and perpetually obeyed in exhaustive detail and thought, word, and deed. The law that comes from God, we're talking about God's moral law, based on his nature and character, uh, has a twofold obligation. You have to pay the price if you violate it, but even if you don't violate it, you have an obligation to keep it. Twofold obligation. It's not enough to have your sins washed away, then you're back where Adam was in the garden. But how do you merit eternal life? Well, you need a perfect positive righteousness. Once the guilt of sin is removed, one is delivered from hell. But if one is to attain eternal glorified life and enter heaven, there must be also a perfect obedience. The original covenant of works in the garden only required a perfect obedience because Adam was holy and without sin. But after all men became guilty with original sin and actual sins, Jesus of Nazareth, of course, accepted, men are under a double obligation. (coughs) The penalty must be paid And the perfect obedience must be rendered. Okay, the Puritans talk about Jesus. Righteousness merited eternal life. Heaven is a reward. Adam wasn't born in heaven. Adam was born on earth. And he was promised eternal glorified life where he could never fall into sin. He could never do anything evil if he obeyed. He didn't obey. And the whole human race fell into sin. So we needed a second Adam to do that obedience in our place because we're certainly not going to do it you can't go one day without one impure thought in your mind you can't go one day without sin in order for Christ to deliver the ungodly he must deliver from the penalty of spiritual death and hell and render the perfect obedience that achieves the reward of heaven now if you're raised in an evangelical church you probably have never heard that before but that's what the Reformers taught and that's what the Puritans taught and the early Presbyterians. They all taught this and it's absolutely provable from Scripture. The full work of Christ, his elimination of guilt through vicarious atonement, his sacrifice, his passive obedience, and his achievement of a perfect record of obedience to the law, which theologians call his active obedience, is all comprehended in the various theological expressions related to righteousness, righteousness, Next, next time you read your New Testament, pay attention to these phrases. The righteousness of God. Romans 1, 17, three five and 21 and 22, 10.3. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Philippians 3, nine The righteousness of one. Romans 5.18. The righteousness of Christ. See Romans 10.4. The righteousness of faith. Romans 4.11 and 13, 9.30, 10.6. Galatians 5.5, 5, Philippians 3.9. The obedience of one. Romans 5.19, the righteousness of Christ or God is imputed to believers apart from their works, Romans 4.6. And this is taught over and over and over again in Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. It's taught throughout the New Testament over and over again. We're saved apart from our own works. This teaching about Jesus' perfect positive righteousness is crucial to the biblical doctrine of salvation, but is neglected in evangelical circles. Once it is forgotten or neglected, then humanistic substitutes are always put in its place, which are heretical. Be warned. Roman Catholics, Romanists, Papists, speak of faith plus subjective works of love, as necessary for Justification. We talk about the imputation of righteousness. Roman Catholics talk about the infusion of righteousness. The Holy Spirit regenerates you and infuses you with righteousness by the Holy Ghost when you're baptized. And then if you cooperate with grace and you're good enough, and you don't commit too many mortal sins and you follow the laws of the Church, you will achieve justification. That's salvation plus faith and works. That's Romanism. In other words, they cooperate with grace and they save themselves. The Federal Vision heretics add faithful obedience to faith or simply define faith as inclusive of the works of faith for a final justification. Once again, you're not saved by faith in Christ alone. You're saved by faith plus faithful obedience. It's very similar to Roman Catholicism. It's a mixing of justification with the doctrine of sanctification. Now, they always accompany each other, but they should never be mixed. Such a wicked error is no better than Roman Catholicism. Arminians add faith as a self-generated, autonomous act of the will to the work of Christ, while older Arminians, or Neonomians, add evangelical obedience, which in their view is a watered-down, much easier-to-keep version of God's law. See, the Bible teaches, and this is the Greek grammar once again, we're saved through faith. It's a gift of God. It's purely instrumental. It's non-moratorious. You're saved through faith. It's a gift of God. You're receiving regeneration. Arminians teach that you're saved because of faith. Here's Bill, and here's Bob, and they they go hear a preacher. Bill believes, and Bob doesn't. And you ask the Arminian, why? Well, both heard the gospel. Both had a work of the Holy Spirit in them. But only one of his own free will chose Christ. And therefore he saved because of his faith. Not faith as a gift. I know that's a very, you may think that's a minor distinction, but it's a difference between heresy and the true gospel. Now, just a footnote about what's plaguing Reformed churches today and has taken over the Reformed Episcopal Church where I went to seminary back in the 70s. The Reformed Episcopal Church has been completely destroyed, in my opinion, by uh, people like Ray Sutton, the theonomist, a follower of James Jordan, who, who believes in the Federal Vision. Norman Shepard, the father of the modern Federal Vision heresy, interprets Romans 2.13. The doers of the law will be justified as meaning that the faithful disciple this is a quote, quote, this is Thesis 20 from his 34 Theses on Justification Related to Faith, Repentance, and Good Works, 1978, by Norman Shepherd, presented to Westminster Seminary East. This is what he says. The faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ will be justified. That's what he thinks Paul is teaching. So Shepard turns the Apostle Paul theologically upside down in order to support his faith plus faithfulness paradigm of justification. the truth of the matter is that Paul is exposing the Jewish position as totally indefensible and impossible given fallen man's ethical reality. Remember Romans? Before he gets into the gospel in detail, he establishes that Gentiles are guilty of sin, Jews are guilty of sin, all the world is guilty of sin and must shut their mouths and bow before Christ. That's that's what he's doing. He's establishing the need for Christ before he talks about the gospel. If we accept the position that those who obey the law will be declared righteous by God, then we must answer certain questions. First, what kind of obedience is necessary to go to heaven in God's sight? Not what you may think. What does God say? Well, the answer is a perfect perpetual obedience, not only in act, but also in thought and word. Okay, I've been married almost forty years. Almost forty. Never touched another woman. Never even considered it. But what about my mind? Oops. Guilty. Girl rides by, your pea shorts, your tent size is too small, real beautiful blonde. Oops, I'm guilty. It applies to your mind, not simply your acts. It applies to your words. You may insult somebody, you may you may gossip, you may do something with your words and sin. And Jesus, of course, followed a very similar argument in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, when he points out that the pharisaical legalistic externalization of the law ignores the fact that true obedience must extend to the mind and the heart, one's thoughts and one's speech. Read Matthew 5, read Matthew 6. What is Jesus doing there? You have heard it said, which is the pharisaical interpretation, but I say, he's not giving us a new law, he's not contradicting the Old Testament, he's refuting the pharisaical perversion of the law, so it could be easy to keep. If you externalize everything, well, yeah, I've never stolen any, you know, you could say, well, I've never stolen anything. Uh, I've never committed adultery. I never murdered anybody. But when you internalize that, which is what Christ does, you know, name calling, have you lusted in your heart? Have you had lust in your heart? And he points out the internalization of the law to show that Pharisaical Judaism is completely a lie and it's bankrupt. This aspect of obedience renders the keeping of the moral law impossible to fallen men, even saved fallen men. I'll never forget, I, this is in the you know, like 30 years ago or something, I was at a, a synod meeting, meeting at a college, and a gorgeous girl rode by on her bike wearing PE shorts that were way too small. And there's all these ministers and elders in their head. It was like a giant magnet went by. Their heads all went, no. Why? Well, Job wouldn't have looked at that. Maybe <laughs> the point is, is that we're all sinners, and you may be real good on the outside, but your inside, you're going to sin. You need Christ. Second, do good works which proceed from faith in Christ have the necessary righteousness to contribute to our justification? And the answer to this question is absolutely not. Jesus said that even our best works are tainted with sin and must never be regarded as meritorious in any way in the realm of justification. Luke 17.10 And of course, see Isaiah sixty four six and uh, Galatians 5.17 God demands a perfect righteousness. Our best works don't measure up. They don't. They don't at all. And we have to acknowledge that. And that's why we need Christ. This idea that our good works can contribute to salvation completely ignores man's sinful state. When you're saved, when you're regenerated, yeah, the power of sin is broken. You're no longer out there going to bars and picking up on chicks and snorting coke and smoking crack and doing all those crazy things. But you still have to fight lust. You still have to fight the the flesh. Look at Paul in Romans chapter 7. I find myself doing those things I absolutely hate. And he explains it because the old man, the flesh. I find a law in my members, the flesh, the old man. Paul made it explicitly clear that he regarded even his best works as filthy rubbish so that he could place his faith in Christ's righteousness alone. Philippians 3, 8-10. That one passage completely refutes Romanism and completely refutes uh, Judaism, completely refutes the federal vision. We are saved by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 4.6, 9.11, 11.6, 11, Galatians 2.16, Galatians 3.10, Ephesians 2.9, etc., etc., etc. How anyone could mix works with faith for salvation is beyond me, given the explicit teaching of the New Testament. Third, how can the works paradigm of Norman Shepherd, the Federal Vision, and Roman Catholics be harmonized with the ex- several explicit passages that teach that faith is the sole instrument that grasps or lays hold of Christ's perfect gift of salvation? Acts 13.39, Romans 3.20 and 24, 4.3-8, Galatians 2.16, Ephesians 2.8-9, 2, Philippians 3, nine, etc., etc., and you can i have a book on justification by faith on my website reformedonline.com where i go into all the greek grammar it's faith as an instrumental means faith is not it doesn't contribute anything it's like a, 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 you have a ring made out of tin that's not even worth a half a cent it's worth nothing but it lays hold of that precious diamond that's worth a million dollars you know there's there's no good illustration to illustrate it but It's the hand of a naked beggar in the dust. It doesn't achieve anything. Christ does everything. It's all of Christ. The answer is is that they cannot be harmonized. There's a radical antithesis in Scripture between faith in Christ alone for salvation and faith in Christ plus works. It is Christ alone, by faith alone. Anything else is some kind of damnable heresy. Christ alone by faith alone. The Lutherans got it. The original Lutherans, Martin Luther, he got it right. Calvin got it right. John Knox got it right. Zwingli, Melanchthon, they all got it right. Romanism got it wrong. Jews get it wrong. The Federal Vision gets it wrong. Neonomians get it wrong. Arminians get it wrong. There's no middle ground. Fourth, if faith plus faithfulness to the law was necessary for justification then how does one explain the Jewish objection to Jesus and Paul's doctrine? Which Paul raises in Romans 6. What was the Jewish response to the Christians, the message of the gospel? Well, if we're saved by Christ alone, might as well go out and sin all you want. You're teaching antinomianism. You're teaching that if we don't contribute to our salvation, I might as well go out and visit whores. I might as well go out and get drunk. And Paul says, God forbid. Not because we add works to justification, but because once you're justified, you're also sanctified. They believe it will lead to antinomianism or a lifestyle of immorality. If the Roman Catholic Federal Vision position was true, the Jews couldn't even make this objection. Paul would simply say, yeah, we believe in salvation by works just like you. We just want to add Jesus onto that. You got Jesus? You got your works? Well, we just want to add Jesus on top of our works. Jesus plus works equals salvation. But that's not what Paul was teaching, and that's why they made the objection. If I don't contribute one iota to my salvation, why why am I not going to go out and sin? And then Paul goes on a very lengthy dissertation that lasts almost for over two chapters, on the necessity of sanctification. And he's not teaching anything different than the Old Testament law. The people were saved out of Egypt. What does God do? Okay, you're saved now. I saved you. You've been redeemed. Here's my law. Obey it. You're my wife now. Obey your husband. Does that mean they were saved by keeping the law? Absolutely not. If they were saved by keeping the law, why do they have blood sacrifices to remove sin? that pointed to Christ. If they were saved by keeping the law, they wouldn't need the blood sacrifices. If the biblical Orthodox Protestant position is true, then we would expect Paul to go on to explain the efficacy of union with Christ and the doctrine of sanctification, which is precisely what he does. Justification is accompanied by all the other saving graces, in the broad sense, sanctification, perseverance, glorification. See Romans 8.30, where Paul says if you're loved by God beforehand, you're going to be justified. If you're justified, you're going to be sanctified. If you're sanctified, you're going to be glorified. It's an unbreakable chain. These deadly heresies must be emphatically rejected. If we are to have proper Christian war sandals is our foundation or preparation for battle against evil. The biblical, that is the historic, confessional, Protestant doctrine of justification is crucial for it upholds God's righteousness and holy law in every way while explaining Christ's salvation and restoration of his people. We cannot overcome evil we cannot fight against the forces of the devil with a heretical form of humanism that does not honor God's justice. Correct. And I've been watching some of these Roman Catholic websites, and their arguments against Protestants are so pitiful. That Scott Hahn heretic, that wicked reprobate, that blasphemer—he's so wicked. Oh, it's a the Protestant position is a fiction. Now, the righteousness of Christ is not a fiction. And Mr. Scott Hahn, show me one person who has a righteousness acceptable to God that is subjective. We need an alien righteousness. We need the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of another, an objective righteousness. Our righteousness doesn't cut the mustard. It's not good enough. It never is good enough. When I was in seminary, Van Til was still alive, and the students would go visit him. He had students come over to his apartment. And somebody said to him, boy, man, you're, I forget, he was in his early 80s by then. Boy, you must be great. You're so old now, man. You don't have to struggle with sin anymore. It's wonderful and all this. He's like, what are you talking about? I struggle with sin every single day. Because we have this, the flesh affects our mind. Does that mean he was out sinning? Getting prostitutes? No. It's the inward struggles, the inward lust we have to fight with. Yeah, sometimes Christians really blow it and go all the way, but that's really bad. Paul identifies this gospel as the gospel of peace. And I should have said this is my third point. Because it brings reconciliation between God and man, which in turn will bring peace and harmony among men. Peace. And that's the Hebrew greeting. And I should have gone into more detail. I ran out of time, but peace means salvation. It also means health. It means prosperity and health in the fuller sense. We need reconciliation and peace with God if we are to stand against the assaults of the devil. Our relationship with God is what enables us to endure trials and tribulations. It is the only way we can withstand insults and persecutions. (coughs) Those Christians who go to the gibbet and are burned at the stake who sing the Psalms and have prayers on their lips who have total peace because they know their soul is right with God. You can burn my body. You can hurt me. You can cause suffering. But I know exactly where I'm going when I die. And go ahead. I'm not going to deny Christ. You Satanist pig. Now, they don't say that part, but you know what I mean. It is the only way we can stand insults and persecutions. Because we have peace with God, we are not concerned about what the world says about us or what the world may do to us. Our sole concern or top priority is pleasing Christ. Our faith in Christ and his salvation is firm. Therefore, we are happy to make sacrifices and deny ourselves for the sake of his kingdom. We've been saved for spiritual warfare. And we understand that the foundation or starting point for Christ's dominion in this world is his salvation. The people of God's inheritance are those who truly believe, not those who apostatize or reject the faith. Yahweh, since Yahweh is the sovereign creator of heaven and earth and Christ is the only way to God by his precious salvation, any kingdom that does not stand on his accomplished redemption is doomed to failure. It will fail. It will fail. It will fail. Unbiblical pietism seeks to limit salvation to man's soul, as if Christians are monks on a mountaintop. But Christ saves man's soul and body, and this salvation is to affect every aspect of his thinking and doing. Every part of society and every relationship is to be permeated with the peace the gospel brings. In fact, ultimately the whole creation will participate in our Lord's achieved salvation, Romans eight, twenty to twenty one, and also Peter, the recreation of the universe when Christ returns. There is clearly no hope for man apart from regeneration. Our salvation includes our restoration to true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Ephesians 4 and Galatians. It is necessary for a true interpretation of God's word and the application of Christ's law to society. The perversion of the gospel which renounces, go- which, uh, renounces godly dominion and the Christianization of culture comes from Neoplatonism and Dispensationalism. Neoplatonism. Unbiblical pietism is rooted on a pagan Greek philosophy. The world is evil it's lesser, it's of unimportance. I'm talking about the physical world. Both view the earth as belonging to the devil and see no biblical reason to seek to transform culture or society. They regard the concept of Christendom or Christian civilization as vain, futile, unattainable, and even unbiblical concepts or goals. The Protestant Reformed Church, read their stuff on eschatology, it's terrible, a negative a negative amillennialism. Where if you're trying to change culture, you're trying to have Christian laws, you're trying to have a Christian society, you're wrong. It belongs to the devil. Just leave it to the devil. Ignore it. Let it go down the toilet. Let it go down the toilet. Yet they ignore the the fact that Western civilization was largely founded on Christianity, and the abandonment of Christianity is leading to ethical chaos and the increasing anarchy of secular humanism. The goal for Christless apostate man is now raw power founded on nothing but lies and propaganda. The strategy of these Satanists is divide and conquer. They spread class and race warfare, creating a society founded not on the peace and love of Christ, but hatred. Who are the most racist Americans in America? It's not whites. It has nothing to do with whites or white privilege. Blacks. I lived in a ghetto. Blacks are by far the most, as a, as a group, there's a lot of wonderful black Christians, but blacks as a group are far, far more racist than anybody else in American society, because they're taught to blame Whitey for all their problems, and their problems are not Whitey's fault, it's not slavery's fault, which ended 150 years ago, it's called living uh, unethically, having undisciplined, unethical lives, not obeying scripture not getting married to have children, having children out of wedlock, not holding down a good job, being a lazy bum. its Ethics is their problem because they don't have a true gospel. They have a false gospel of antinomianism. Without Jesus' sin is redemption. Apostate and fallen man's exercise of dominion is demonic. They worship power for the sake of power, and they will lie, steal, cheat, and destroy for the sake of having it and maintaining it. As Orwell perceived, their goal is a boot stamping on the human face forever. You say, what are, the, what are the Democrats doing? Why are they letting all these illegal aliens in? They don't speak English. They can't hold down a, a good job. The, the, the rise in crime is going to be abundant. It's going to be horrible for our nation. Why are they doing it? Because they think they're going to vote Democratic. They want an, a new underclass to support them forever. Because they don't care about the United States. They care about their own power. They don't care about crime. They care about their own power. Jesus has taught us that the meek shall inherit the earth, Matthew 5, 5. He is speaking of a spiritual meekness and humility that acknowledges our sin and guilt and looks solely to Jesus Christ for salvation and direction. When you acknowledge you're a sinner and you acknowledge that you can't earn salvation and you acknowledge you're a filthy, rotten bum, arrogance goes out the window and you worship Christ. You see that in Revelation when they cast their crowns and their, their rewards for acts of grace, their rewards of grace, they cast them at the feet of the Savior at his pierced feet because they know they're worthy of nothing. Dominion over the earth is given only to those who deny self and bow the knee to Christ through faith. The meek are those humbled and redeemed whom God through Christ has convicted and renewed so that they will obey his will and faithfully apply his law. We must not mistake meekness with wimpiness or being effeminate or a toleration of evil. That's not what it means. It's meekness spiritually. It's meekness in regard to God. It doesn't mean a toleration of sin or acting like an effeminate fool It is a meekness of submission unto God which says no to the flesh, no to the world, no to the devil, which stands up to evil men for the sake of the kingdom of God. Christians work not for their own dominion or exaltation, but solely for the dominion of Christ. Men will hate you. So be it. People will hate you. You'll lose friends, family. So be it. We work for Christ. We do what Christ wants. Sin has brought great calamity to planet Earth. Fallen men have stained the Earth with blood and they've marred culture. Therefore, as saved men, we have a ministry of reconciliation and restoration. We work to make the Earth a new creation under Christ, the King. We refuse to accept secular humanism's redefinition of morality, which is the acceptance and propagation of evil. That's all it is. And until these uh, popular YouTubers, until these popular conservatives say that homosexuality is wicked and it's evil, they're going to get nothing. They're basically saying, oh, it's fine, just leave us alone. No, it's evil. You've got to call evil evil. Instead, we work for repentance and meet restitution. Humanistic restitution is antinomian and praises the wicked, for it is the opposite of Christ's kingdom. By rejecting God's absolute, unchanging moral law, they also reject the fact that salvation can only come through faith in Christ. They believe not in Christ alone, but in the humanistic state alone. They believe in salvation through legislation and redefinition. For when their laws and rulings lead to immorality, poverty, and degradation, <clears throat> which they always do. They turn to redefinition to cover their lives and failures. <clears throat> Watch Thomas Sowell. Watch all of his lectures. There's a bunch of his stuff on YouTube. He smashes liberalism, uh, progressivism in the left with facts. Before Lyndon Johnson and the New Society and the great rise of welfare programs, black families were way better off. We're making great progress economically. We're making great progress with regard to crime. The illegitimacy rate around 1960 was 25%, and it had been falling. Once the welfare programs began, today it's 75%, or 70%. And back then they thought 25%, what a crisis, how terrible can it be? Well, now it's 70 75%. You wonder why you go to the ghetto and people are shooting each other. They don't have fathers in the home. They have no solid upbringing. They don't know anything about covenant headship. They don't know anything about biblical leadership. It's all, give me what I want. I deserve it. You're all racist. It's white privilege. As they commit crimes. And they're wicked. As Christians, we must remember that the moral law of God is a gift of love to the covenant people. The introduction of the Ten Commandments celebrates the grace and mercy of God. But a humanistic law, which is positivistic, it's purely made up, it's arbitrary and antinomian, celebrates the state and erringly declares autonomous law to be salvation itself. As Christians, we must remember that we are saved to obey Christ and implement a biblical world and life view, a biblical law order. If Christians deny the social implications of our Lord's salvation and the implementation of his righteous law, then they will surrender the world to the devil. A solid, healthy culture is not defined by ballet or opera houses or art galleries or large, amazing government buildings, all of which had their counterparts in pagan Babylon, Greece, and Rome. Did the Greeks make amazing pagan temples? Boy, they sure did. So do the Babylonians. So do the Cambodians. They have a whole city over there. Yeah, they can do great things because man, the manishness of man still exists. He's lost true knowledge, true righteousness, and holiness, but man is still man. He has a surface knowledge. He can make beautiful cars. He can make beautiful architecture. He can have wonderful ballet programs. He can create beautiful works of art. But it's all ethically bankrupt without Christ. A solid, healthy culture comes from hard-working Christian families who submit to God's moral law. I used to have these tapes. Uh, Rush Dooney and Otto Scott had these tapes where they just sit around and talk about stuff. <clears throat> they're really good tapes. I, I, I hope they're still available. They'd probably be on CDs now. But when Otto Scott, now Otto Scott's been dead for a while. He, he grew up in the, I guess, the, the teens and the 20s. When he was a kid, his family would go to Central Park and sleep in the park on a hot summer day, they'd go out and sleep in the park. Nowadays, at night, you wouldn't be caught dead walking through the park. You'd get robbed. You'd probably get killed. Now, it sounds paradoxical that we need peace with God to fight against Satan, but it makes perfect sense. In this fallen world, there are only two sides of the conflict, and neutrality is impossible. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, and you have not been reconciled with God, then even though you may not be aware of it, you are at war with God ethically, spiritually, and epistemologically. You're at war with God. This is a war that cannot be avoided. The all-important question is, whose side are you on? Let us make sure that we carefully study what the Bible says about the salvation achieved by Jesus Christ and how we can obtain it. We must understand God's sovereign grace and place all of our faith in Jesus Christ apart from the works of the law. Ephesians 2, 8-9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, even faith is a gift that you receive in regeneration. Our method of spiritual conquest is by the preaching of the gospel, not by revolution or physical violence. The nations are conquered by the sword that proceeds out of the mouth of Christ, Revelation 19.15. Beloved, a church without the gospel is a wicked, hideous thing. The Jews who abandoned the truth in the Old Testament were either slain by the heathen or carted off as slaves in a foreign land. The Roman Catholic Church rejected the true gospel so strongly they persecuted Bible-believing Protestants to torture Flame, chains, and death. Because the Protestants were preaching the true gospel. you know you could be killed for having a Bible? Yeah. That's Romanism. It is satanic when people say, oh yeah, they're a true branch of the Christian church. No, they're not. They deny the gospel. They worship the Virgin Mary and they worship the saints. They're idolaters. The mass is blasphemous. Romanism is idolatry and Mary would never approve of it. You know, the Lady of Guadalupe? That's just simply a pagan shrine that was turned into the worship of the Virgin Mary. Papists were the servants of Satan in doctrine, in worship, and practice, and remain so to this very day. The modernists abandoned the gospel for secular humanism over 100 years ago, and now they preach the gospel of socialism, statism, abortion on demand, sodomite perversions, and hardcore satanic antinomianism. They have sodomite pastors and lesbian pastors. What a blasphemous, wicked thing. It's wicked. The Church of Sodom and Gomorrah is what it is. The true gospel is not good news or glad tidings to heretics and humanists, but is something to be stamped out in their view because it proclaims that only Jesus is the Savior, Messiah, and Lord. Why do men reject or forsake the pure wine of the gospel, joy? For various modes of humanism, because they do not worship or believe in the true and living God, but autonomous man. They are rank idolaters. The old Bob Dylan song, 1979, You Got to Serve Somebody. It's going to be Jesus or the Devil. They have embraced idolatry and they have joined themselves to the armies of Satan. So, do you see now how the gospel is a preparation? how the gospel is foundational to our armor, how you really need the true gospel. If you don't have the true gospel, you don't have anything. You're still on the devil's side. So we must cherish this gospel. We must defend it with every fiber of our being in this attitude today that's anti-doctrinal. Oh, you're splitting hairs, man. You're being a jerk. Cut him some slack. It's only the gospel. It's only doctrine. What an idiotic view. That comes from the mouth of Satan. That's idiocy. So let us learn from this. Let us apply it to our lives. We'll stop here. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel. Wow. It is amazing. We thank you for your dear son, Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, who came and born in Bethlehem, probably in September, 4 B.C., 5 B.C., born of a virgin, lived and suffered a life of humiliation in our behalf, shed his blood for us, washed away all the guilt penalty of our sins, and imputed his perfect righteousness. He he rose from the third day for our justification. We thank you for that, Lord. Help us to apply it to ourselves and our families and society. In Jesus' name, amen.